Good morning. Very early in the morning from Beirut. It is dark out in the Hamra neighborhood, a little fist of city that punches down into the blue Mediterranean. It is dark up here, but the Muzanes calling the prayer and the roosters in the streets are all well caffeinated and already firing. Good morning from Beirut. This particular morning was just before the dawn of COVID, before the hideous port explosion. Instead, it was during the original fight for Beirut, what they called the revolution. The revolution in Lebanon is why I'm here. The people had started gathering months before at the Egg, a rundown obelisk landmark in the heart of downtown Beirut. They gathered, they chanted, they sang, they organized, they protested the conditions that would lead later on to so much heartache at the port. And I knew, even then, that this revolution was the same revolution that is happening in bits and pieces almost everywhere. I can't name it, but I swear I saw parts of this Lebanese revolution constantly in places that the trip has gone. I saw it in Appalachia, I saw it in Kurdistan, I saw it from Thailand to Tijuana. It is a diffuse revolution for decency, for justice, for joy, for government that respects our lives and ambitions. And more than anything, it's a revolution against corruption. So even before COVID, even back when I was in Beirut, they were banging pans in Santiago, guarding servers in Hong Kong, marching into the batons of the Hindutvas in Delhi. Beirut was in the middle of this good fight and will continue to be so. So this show is spending five episodes on the ground here in this beautiful, brittle city. And we are going to start with one of my culinary heroes, a woman who lost both of her homelands, Lebanon and Syria, but was back in Beirut for a moment to greet the revolution, to see her mother, to feel the revolution, to eat good things that are here and nowhere else on earth. Her name is Anissa Helou, and she is making us Arak a Levantine aniseed distillate that is cloudy to the eye and crisp on the tongue and freeing to the mind. We will talk in this episode about her life in exile, about how food brought her back to her childhood, and about what she wants for her Lebanon. But in the background, you will hear from time to time that same call to prayer. Just take it as a motif throughout these five episodes from Beirut. It is an alarm, a wake-up call, it started ringing long before COVID and will keep on ringing until we all finally wake up together. This is Nathan Thornburg and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Normally, in the restaurants, they prepare it in a jug and then they pour it in glasses. But you can also do it directly in glasses. And the regular, some people do it 50-50, but it's very, very strong. So I do it one-third, two-thirds. That's one-third Iraq to yeah. two-thirds water. Yeah, and you have to, do the, to put the Iraq first in the glass, and then the water, and finally the ice. I am not sure why that is. I mean, I know why you want to add the water after the Iraq, because of this. Look, this is very beautiful. Look at the color. It's 
So it kind of goes slowly, very cloudy. And uh, you have to leave a bit of space for the ice because you want to put as much ice as you like, which in my case is a lot of ice. This is the magic of Arak. It turns from, yeah. from water to milk. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it's very, it's very far from the taste of milk. <laughs> sort <laughs> or, of the anti Or even taste. the effect of milk. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> soothing, right? It calms <laughs> babies. Yeah, and it very quickly makes you feel quite tipsy. <laughs> it's strong. <laughs> wow. All right, well, let's, let's have a seat and talk it out. How did you get into becoming an interpreter of the Levant and, you know, through to Napa and just food cultures generally? Well, it was really by chance. Um, I was in the art world for, you know, as my first um, serious career. And for 20 years, I was in the art world. And then I was working and buying art for members of the royal, Kuwaiti royal family. And the Gulf War happened. At the same time, I was starting to think about, I've always wanted to be a writer, but my initial ambition was much more elevated and it was like Simone de Beauvoir, you know, kind of novelist. And so I was thinking about writing about collectors who collected the way I did with, very, with relatively little money, ahead of the curve, you know, anticipating markets, buying things that people did not want that were really beautiful, like my fishing tackle collection, which I started buying when nobody was looking at fishing tackle. And I got myself a literary agent who introduced me to a Lebanese friend. And at the dinner, they were discussing cookbooks. It was 1992, and the beginning of the trend. So I was, I was listening to them, and I was thinking, there isn't a Lebanese cookbook that is um, user-friendly for those not familiar with the cuisine. And at the same time, I was thinking my mother is a great cook and I could write down her recipes. So I flippantly said, oh, maybe I should write a book on Lebanese food. And now this was in London. Yeah. Uh, and this was right after the end of the Civil War. Uh, yeah. So you would have been talking with people who were kind of forcibly not in Lebanon anymore. Exactly. And I wasn't. I hadn't been to Lebanon for 14 years, I think. By then, or ten years, I can't remember. So it's not just a it's not just a market opportunity for you. It's also like this hole in your heart about exactly that food. And also, the second reason for me was to to produce a volume for all those young Lebanese who were displaced because of the war and did not have the fortune that I had of seeing everything made at home, uh, seeing my grandmother prepare kishk, for instance, or my mother make pickles or cook, just simply cook. Um, in front of me, and or my aunt make tanur bread. Um, so my Lebanese friend immediately said, oh, why would you want to do that? There is already a Bible. The Bible was a book that was published in 1958, where a recipe for chicken started by kill your chicken, pluck it, <laughs> then put a ton of butter on it and roast it. <laughs> so I said, no, that's not the Bible, certainly not for the 1990s. But my agent interestingly said, I have a publisher who's looking for somebody to write, who would write a, a Lebanese cookbook. And I said, I'm your person, knowing nothing about cookbooks, not having any respect for cookbooks, because I didn't think they were a literary genre or any kind of genre. 
And um, but in in your writing and the way that you talk about stories of your childhood, you you have this kind of precociousness about flavor and sense memory and and things. Did you know that about yourself? Did you feel like that was already very special, or and it just not connected with, with the idea of this could be put into a book? What I knew about myself is that I was a good cook. I mean, home cook that I knew about food because I grew in a food culture and I lived in Paris. I was very, I was, I mean, to use the term foodie, I was a foodie. I didn't cook because I didn't want to be domesticated, but I cooked for friends. So I would spend a lot of time in the kitchen preparing a dinner for friends and thinking I'm wasting my time. Uh, and once I even thought maybe I should make it my profession if I'm spending so much time in the kitchen, but you know, kind of fleetingly. So I wasn't a writer, I had not written anything, but I was very interested in food and in shopping and in ingredients and everything. And, but what I did, which was I think quite clever, I had a boyfriend who was a serious cook and foodie and who had a huge collection of cookbooks and Caroline Davidson, who's Alan Davidson's daughter, was my agent. And she took me to the Oxford Symposium of Food and Cookery and introduced me to a lot of really serious food writers. So I chose a few mentors. And at the same time, I went to my boyfriend and said, guess what? I'm going to write a cookbook. <laughs> um, and you're going to be my recipe tester? And you're going to help me. <laughs> no, much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Not even that fun? <laughs> no, he was actually very helpful. Um, but so I started talking to people like Helen Sabery, who wrote about Afghan cookery, um, Charles Perry, um, and a few others. I kind of chose them carefully. And one person who died who wrote about nutrition, who was a friend of a friend. And I kind of gathered a few sort of tips from them and an idea of how to go. And then, of course, I started buying lots of cookbooks to kind of familiarize myself with the genre. And um, Caroline Davidson was very, very helpful because she was a great editor. And she made me work for six months on a proposal that ended up 80 pages. Oh, God. I mean, 80 printed pages. Yeah, that, so, is, a, that is a kind of depth of uh, torture that, that most editors <laughs> won't allow you to get to. Exactly. <laughs> these and days. From, from thinking that I could write the book in three months and something like really simple and wouldn't take any time or whatever, I ended up going to the British Library, sitting with my mother, making my mother write her recipes, even though they were totally on, you know, like the measures were a handful of this a teacup of that, a coffee cup of that, and cook until it's done. Mom, what does it mean cook until it's done? Well, you need to just test it. And I say half an hour, an hour, two hours, whatever. You just threw these notes at your boyfriend <laughs> and said, figure it out. <laughs> Tell me about this dynamic of not wanting to feel domesticated. Well, it was about me being a feminist or wanting to be a feminist. Uh, from when I was 16 and I started to read The French Existentialist, and in particular a book by Simone de Beauvoir called L'Invité, which was like free, not quite free love, but, you know, like detached, you know, not living with the man, not being married, and it's okay if he has another mistress. I mean, I'm simplifying it very... But so <laughs> what I ended up wanting for myself was the exact opposite of what would have been expected of me as a good 
Lebanese girl. Um, and and the, the idea of me cooking for a man or for a family or for anybody on a daily basis right. was meant to be trapped. I just saw it as drudge. I didn't see it as pleasure. I cooked once at 16, made one dish as a, on a midnight feast with my sisters, and I left some for my mother for her to see the, if it was right. And she liked it. But after that, I didn't cook until I was 21. You were like, you are not trapping me <laughs> in exactly. your system. But right, so you would watch mothers, aunts, grandmothers. Cook, yeah, I love that. Cook growing up, but, but in, in a way that didn't feel always completely voluntary or <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, it, it was necessity cooking for others. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my grandmother, my mother and my aunt were very wedded to the kitchen and to cooking. They didn't resent it, but it was something they did on a daily basis. I never saw that as something that I would want for myself. And in fact, I don't do that. I have never done that. But I came to cooking on a completely anti-feminist feeling because I was with my like then boyfriend who I lived with, and when I moved in, I said, don't expect me to do two things. Don't expect me to cook for you and don't expect me to sew buttons for you. So we have that clear and from then on, we're fine. <laughs> then he invited this very glamorous blonde American and he asked me what it was for dinner. And I said, well, open the fridge, look what's in the fridge and maybe you can see what's for dinner. <laughs> Put which it on was, the table. <laughs> which was a bit obnoxious, I have to say. But, uh, well, you had a point to make, okay, right? He thought he was talking about dinner. You were talking about your life, about your freedom, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so she cooked a brilliant dinner. Oh. She took over. Oh, wow. Well, that is very American. <laughs> she came into your home and just created uh, what then, she wanted to make. But then my kind of feminisms kind of flew out of the window because I was looking at him, looking impressed and looking at her and being very pleased. And I was thinking well, maybe I should do something. So I announced that I would cook for, invite all our friends, I think it was about 30 people, and uh, to a Lebanese meal, having cooked one dish, Lebanese dish When in you my were life. 16 and um, immediately fleeing from it. And I said, okay, we'll invite our friends and I'll cook Lebanese. It was, I think it was the 76 or 77. So it was very early on. London was a culinary desert. It wasn't like people into olive oil or herbs or whatever. Yeah. I, mean, like, I mean, it was a culinary desert that was 30 years from stopping being a culinary desert, right? This yeah, is, this absolutely. Is, uh, hadn't so, even reached the nadir Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. It was just like terrible. No good restaurants, nothing. And no shopping. I mean, like sad supermarkets. So I had to go from one like Greek store to a Middle Eastern store. I don't know. I can't remember. But I went to different places to get the olive oil, the burgle, the, you know, the, the parsley, because my menu was kind of ambitious. I was going to make kibbe, tabbouleh, hummus. The, you know, I was going to do a proper Lebanese spread. Having, <laughs> not having a cookbook either. And not being able to call my mother because it was the war and it was at the height of the war when for six months there was no communication with the outside from Lebanon. My God. So... 
mean, that was right. The war started in 75. And, yeah, 75. In, in earnest. And 76 was like the height oh. of the war. Yeah. When downtown was destroyed. So I just thought I would cook from memory because I had watched my mother and my grandmother cook like from when I was a kid. And I thought, well, I must, I must know how it's made. And I produced the meal. To be honest, I don't know if it was good. My friends were Europeans. I mean, they didn't know any better. I, I don't remember. But I produced the meal and everybody was very happy and I was very proud of myself. And from then on, I decided I would cook dinner parties. And that's how, that's how you came back to cooking. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's such a, among your oeuvre is a, uh, I don't know if it was the Telegraph or something, but a, uh, a kind of um, a sensual menu <laughs> for, uh, it's like aphrodisiac cooking. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, uh, sautéed sheep's testicles followed <laughs> by, uh, you know, I think fig ice cream or something. So I, it, it feels like uh, somewhere along that process, you managed to make cooking work for you in all the things that you want to achieve in, in life. Like cooking can be this great vehicle and it was not trapping you. It was kind of the other way around. Well, it became fun whenever I cooked because, you know, I'd plan my menus, I'd cook French or Spanish or, you know, whatever I felt like cooking. But it wasn't until I started working on my Lebanese cookbook that I started viewing food and recipes in a different light. You know, started seeing food as culture and writing down recipes as a way of preservation, you know, preserving culinary lore and all this. So it became, it's kind of too strong a word to say an intellectual pursuit, but I combined the sort of pursuit of culture and preservation with the practicalities of writing really good recipes and refining my mother's recipes or anybody else's recipes. It does feel to me like one of the things, because that Lebanese cookbook ended up being the first of nine books and counting now, and, and the ambitions are go way beyond geography and, and a, you know, a single cuisine. Does that have something to do with your own heritage, right? Your father's from Syria, your mother's Lebanese... Is that unusual here? Did it make some sort of impression on you just to be kind of a bicultural kid in that way? Yeah, absolutely, because we used to spend summers at my aunt in Meshtel Helu, which is like, at that time, was the family place. Which is state. your last name. Yeah. Um, that's that's and, and, very deeply a family place <laughs> if it's actually named after the Helu people. And, 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 and then it was only us. There was nobody else in that, you know... I wouldn't say village because it wasn't even a village. It was like a hamlet. And, you know, there was one big house with a huge courtyard and rooms all around that, you know, my father had two rooms, my aunt had one, cousins had others. And then there were the cousins who decided to build for themselves. And there were two or three, I think, three beautiful stone houses. And that was it. And then fields everywhere, wheat, fruit trees, groves. So it was very, very beautiful. And you're a city kid. And I'm a city kid. going out to like deep country. <laughs> yeah. And when I was really young, my aunt didn't even have a bathroom. You know, we had to go outside. So it was kind of weird. She didn't even have running water. So we'd be bathed in a kind of copper tub in the kitchen. So it was very exciting. And for me, even more exciting because I could pick my fruit. I could watch my, my aunt make bread. 
watched them make butter together. I mean, there was real sort of, it was fascinating. And, um, and enlightening as well, because I learned a lot without knowing that I was learning things. That It meant a lot to me, but it wasn't what I wanted for me or for my destiny, because I had like, I didn't even have wild ambitions. I had, you know, I had ambitions of being somebody who was intellectual and cultured and not artistic at that time. I was not so interested in art. And then I fell into art by chance as well, because when I moved to London, the first thing I learned was interior design, and I didn't like it because I didn't want to be like, again, you know, obligated to clients. So at that time, I became friends with Zaha Hadid. And we, became, we stayed friends for a very long time. And we were very close. And one day I was, you know, with Zaha at my house. And I was thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't want to be an interior designer. And she said, why don't you go to the Sotheby's, do the Sotheby's Works of Art course? And <laughs> I knew nothing about art. But I took a book on, about Cezanne. And I read it from, you know, from beginning to end. And I had a very, very good memory then. So I was very knowledgeable, I mean, superficially very knowledgeable about Cezanne. I got an interview very quickly. I canceled a trip to India to go to the interview because I wanted to be accepted on the course. And, and so I, you know, I entered, you know, I was tall and kind of good looking. And the man, the director of the course was kind of small. And so I kind of impressed him. The way I entered, you, you know, towered super, over him and <laughs> super confident, fine features, <laughs> and you're suddenly commanding knowledge of Cezanne. And so I kind of launched into the interview and brought the subject to Cezanne because that's what I knew. And he seemed to be kind of impressed. And then he mentioned Meissen. I didn't know, I didn't know that Meissen was a German porcelain. And I said, who? And immediately noticed that I made a mistake. And kind of caught myself and changed the, con the conversation. Who I can't wouldn't remember. know myself? <laughs> <laughs> and, but I got accepted. Right. And, and I was thrilled. And that's how I... And, and, the, and then you have this incredible name uh, attached with you, with Sotheby's. And I assume there were some, some big, impressive steps between that and, and buying art for the Kuwaiti royal family. But... Uh, well, the thing is that I, I was hired by Sotheby's at the end of the course because I was an Arab and because they were hoping that I would connect them to, you know, rich Middle Easterners. And I was well connected enough, but not as well connected as they thought I was. But they don't have to know that. They didn't, they didn't know that. <laughs> We're then. just like, yeah, sure, Arabs, I can hook you up with any sheikhs, uh, Qataris, uh, you know, Emiratis, whatever you need. <laughs> but then I, I kind of slowly, you know, I got to know some people through friends, etc. And, and I met my friends in Kuwait. And so I was, you know, I was helping them at Sotheby's. But then I left because I was not really a corporate person. And I went freelance. I opened a shop in Paris. That was a disaster because I lost all the money my father gave me. That's a very romantic way to do that, though, <laughs> right? It's better than, like, you know, betting on the horses or something. But that was, that was all during the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it was, I opened the shop in 76, in and I closed it, I think, in 77 or 78. So it didn't last very long. Yeah. 
you had you intended your stay in London to be a brief one? Yeah, at the beginning, yes, because I was like planning to go to Geneva to study interpreter school. I mean, to go to interpreter school because I was very good at languages. But then that first man who I didn't cook for, <laughs> I met him and yeah. and then. And you guys had a life of, of not cooking for each other to look forward to. <laughs> How, I, I mean, I, I mean, a big part of the reason why I'm here is because you are here at the same time. We have a lot of, uh, some of my very closest friends are, uh, are close friends with you. And I was actually at a dinner that I think David Thompson and Andy Ricker were cooking in Manhattan about a month ago. And Bobby Ghosh was, you know, sort of, uh, as he should be, unimpressed with all the different travels I had, you know, been on uh, recently. And he just said, well, if you really want to see something, you should go to Beirut when Anissa's there. <laughs> and of course, you know, having having followed you for uh, for years, I, I, I immediately knew the truth of what he was saying. So the fact that you are back here now uh, is a rare opportunity to see you kind of um, back in your hometown and your in your natural element. How is your relationship to Beirut uh, these days and, and how, how has it changed, I guess, over the years? Um, it hasn't changed much. I have a love-hate relationship to my home country or one of my home countries because Syria is the other. I love it because, well, I love my mother and my father when he was alive and the family and my friends and the food and the sea and and now Beirut is very ugly but before it was ugly but not as ugly as now but the idea there's a certain dolce vita here that is not I mean now it's a bit less but when I was growing up here it was very noticeable so we'd go to the beach, to the Saint-Georges, which was very glamorous. And That's the yacht club just down the street here. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the beautiful 1930s hotel that was destroyed. Mm. Um, so you still have a little bit of that feeling of Beirut, but a lot of it has gone. Like you're here in Hamra, which where we lived when I was uh, living here and I was young. And it was full of cafes and lots of artists. And it, it had a very nice atmosphere, lots of cinemas. I mean, like, we saw all the latest films when I was a teenager. It's different now. It's not, it, it doesn't have that ease of life. I mean, now there's the revolution, so it's a completely different thing. But it does, the Lebanese people are very resilient, very joyful, very life-loving and food-loving as well. And there is an atmosphere here that is very enjoyable. And I love the food as well. I love the culture up to a certain point. I hate the politics. I hate the corruption, the la you know, the lack of law and order and all this. And I actually <laughs> don't like the materialistic aspect of Lebanese society either. But so my relationship to the country is more or less the same. But I'm a bit more tolerant now because I'm older and, you know, as you get older, you become more tolerant, or at least I am becoming more tolerant. So I take it as it comes, but I would never want to spend more than two, three weeks at a stretch here. Mm. After that, I'm happy to go. You know, I was thinking about you when I was reading of some of these stories of uh, Mashtal Alou, your, your family's town because that's near Homs in Syria yeah um, which was sort of the, the cradle of the Syrian revolution yeah and, and, and they could they they received a lot of refugees from Homs at 
at the height of the war. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, Homs, I, from what I know, I've never been there, but it sounds like it suffered incredibly. A lot, a lot. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's such a strange thing to think that of, of this bicultural, you know, kind of bounty that you had growing up, first one and then the other had just done kind of these terrible things to itself, to, you know, to one another. Like, how do you metabolize that? And, and what, what was that process of watching Syria sink into, you know, I like to say that I'm an orphan of two countries. Basically, both my countries have been destroyed as I have known them. Syria is a lot more tragic because it was the government that was killing its own people, whereas here it was people killing each other and lots of different factions killing each other. So it was understandable that Christians hated Muslims, uh, Muslims, Shias hated uh, Sunnis and the Druze hated the Christians and the Palestinians were in the middle, poor things, and they kind of got the brunt of it all. Um, in Syria, it was, for me, it was more tragic because it was a much more beautiful, much less destroyed country. The heritage in Syria is just staggering. I mean, we have heritage here, but not, not as much as in Syria. And the most enchanting souk of the Middle East was destroyed, the, in the Aleppo. souk in Aleppo. Yeah where you could walk for kilometers in uninterrupted history, that's gone. That is tragic. People, half of the population has been displaced. A beautiful people, the Syrians are really wonderful. Like, beautiful to look at, beautiful to be with, hospitable, gentle. I mean, you know, I'm generalizing, but as a, as a people. Um, and the country that was beautiful, that had the most, you know, fabulous sites like Palmyra, you know, the Temple of Baal, I think it was the Temple of Baal, I hope it is, uh, was destroyed. I mean, priceless, priceless architecture, historical artifacts, culture is gone. So you have moved to the, uh, to the fringes of the Islamic world in Sicily, <laughs> which makes you also a very fun follow because whatever you may have felt about interior design, you seem to not mind practicing it well in your own personal life. And the, the life you're putting together in Sicily looks fucking amazing. How did you end up in Sicily and, and what is it doing for you to be there? Well, Sicily is amazing from the point of view that I went there 20 years ago, almost the first time. And instantly on the eastern side and instantly I kind of thought this looks so much like Syria. The eastern side is slightly different from where I am on the western side. It's kind of not more wild, but it's, you know, it's more rocky in parts. And it has these landscapes that reminded, I mean, some, the landscapes there really reminded me of Syria. And I loved it. I went back two or three years later with a friend and we drove around from west to east and it was wonderful. But it wasn't... I was already, like, when I, a few years ago, I was starting to think about leaving London. I was getting bored with the grayness, with the kind of big city, with the pollution. And I wanted to go somewhere, like, sunny and beautiful. And not that London is not beautiful, but... It's definitely not sunny. <laughs> and you also, this is really, one of these great things that I got to see in your sort of collected public uh, footprint was the... Some mention of you as a food writer and a uh, 
and the president of the very active shortage residents <laughs> association <laughs> like you were really fighting for your fucking neighborhood back in london too <laughs> and i try in sicily but it doesn't work very well <laughs> yeah so the sicilian uh, you know residents association to no 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 i'm i'm done with that the shortage episode was very interesting but it, it, that was the, the I mean, last the fight you seem to have was just like to bring out just another cop or two maybe you know on uh, on a crazy weekend night in Shoreditch or something and it never you never quite won that battle no huh? i didn't i won a ba- i won one battle which was to stop a bar from opening below me not below me but opposite me you know and that i put a lot of effort in and i won that battle um i'm a, i don't know if i'm a busybody but i like to put things right so <laughs> If I see somebody being horrible to a child, I tell them that they shouldn't be horrible to the child. I don't think they might that they might beat me up. I just like, you can't do this to the child. And then they look at me and they say, F off. And I look at them and I say, that's not how you educate children. <laughs> so <it's laughs> so the, 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 the lesson, the teaching moments just kind of continue. Uh, but you haven't, you haven't been in Sicily long enough to... Uh, have been too thoroughly frustrated in your efforts to, you know. I get frustrated in Sicily a lot. Like, I mean, it's a, I mean, the Sicilians who, God love them, you know, have created the thing. Uh, also, seem to be hugely frustrated. There. It's, it's true. I mean, I, I think the reason why I went to Sicily is like going home without going home. The, the, the countryside. You know, it's on the Mediterranean, the, the produce is the same, the sunshine is fabulous, the people are very warm and hospitable. So there are lots of elements that remind me of where I grew up, but it's not. So there's never a risk of having ISIS there, there is no like sexism, well there is. It's not that there isn't, in fact there's a lot of sexism there, but it's a it's, different form. Yeah, but it's yes. expressed differently. So my brother was against the idea when I finally said, after going, having gone to the olive harvest at Mary Taylor Simeti, I found the place I'm moving to. And I asked Mary to find me a friend to, who would find me a piece overlooking the sea, a piece of land overlooking the sea, and she did. And my brother was saying, why don't you go to Tuscany? My brother is kind of fancy. <laughs> as, as one asks, <laughs> why don't you take that stuff to Tuscany? Exactly. And, you know, he's a banker, and he said it'd be a better investment, truly. I mean, he's, he's right about that. And I said, no, 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 I want to go to Sicily. And it's like going home without going home. And when I said that to him, he stopped, you know, interfering or, you know, kind of going against what I wanted to do. I mean, he didn't have a say, really, but... Right. You know, you know. Well, it's 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 a compelling idea rather than just sort of aimlessly somewhere in Europe that's nice where I can just hole up. It's 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 true. Like you're actually finding something that has deep meaning to you. Yeah. And also is kind of a buyer's market. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> totally. I mean, the Sicily is so confounding because I also uh, found it totally enchanting. Uh, love being there, and the people are are very non-Italian in, in a lot of great ways and probably some poor ways that I wasn't really keyed in on. But they are selling, you know, homes in villages for like a dollar in the interior, at least, if you promise to, you know, uh, fix it up. At the same time as they're, you know, kicking all the migrants off the shore. I mean, it's a big hot mess uh, and it's a gorgeous place. And, and it does feel like if you're actually moving there, you must 
there must be something internally that's really driving you and, and, and kind of giving you a passion for the place. So how, how, how's this process of creating the, the, the new home base in, in Sicily? Well, it's very interesting. First, I bought this piece of land, about 10 acres, overlooking the sea. Beautiful. And I thought I would build a beautiful house. Initially, Zaha was going to design the house. And it seemed a little overpowered, <laughs> but okay, great. Get the world's and most famous architect to build. And a teaching kitchen, yeah. and I would grow things. I, I mean, this whole idea of me growing things is ridiculous because I know nothing about gardening, and I'm totally a city girl. And like, even when my the guy who's planting my land asked me if I wanted to pot the cedar of Lebanon, I said, "No, you do it, and I'll just take a picture." <laughs> so I'm definitely not a country girl, and I don't like getting my hands dirty. And, um, <laughs> so. Then I came to realize that the Sicilian, Sicilian bureaucracy is not for the faint-hearted, and I'm not that young, and I thought either I will die before I see this house built or I'll be ruined. So I shelved the project. Anyway, in the meantime, Zaha died, and she wasn't going to, to design my house. I ruined it. I mean, I, it was my last big project. I wanted to build a beautiful house, but it's not to be. So I switched and I bought this amazing flat overlooking the sea in the town where I had rented a flat very near the piece of land. And I'm finishing it now. And it's absolutely, I mean, the flat is not spectacular because it doesn't have high ceilings, but the view is just divine. Like I wake up and I see a square tower in the distance and the westernmost point of Italy and the sea. And then... I go to my desk and I'm sitting working overlooking the sea. Yeah. Then I go to the kitchen and all I have to do is turn my head and I see the sea. Yeah. So it's just, it's like a perfect retirement home. It does, it does feel like a Rothko when you look out. It's just like big color. <laughs> yeah, it's very beautiful. And I did, I did everything neutral in the flat despite what my architect wanted. And he wanted like lava stone and gray everywhere. And I said, no, 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 you just don't understand my taste. I don't want any of this. I just want something very Zen, very Japanesey. Well, I didn't get my Japanesey thing, but anyway, it's very pale, it's very light, it's very spacious. And it kind of frames the view, huh. which is, I mean, it won't be a retirement home because I'll go on working, but it's just like a very peaceful um, setting. And you're still able to roll out to Palermo, hop yeah, on a plane. an hour away. Go, go where you need to go for your next adventures. Um, all right, well, I hope that we can uh, reconvene uh, in Sicily. <laughs> <laughs> you could see this like my conversation with Bobby. Yeah, Beirut with Anissa. That sounds great. <laughs> so I'm now self-assigning. Let's go to Sicily. Check you back must in come. On those it's very guys. beautiful. Well, you know it's very beautiful. Uh, I, I mean, just Balero Market in Palermo is, is a place where I spent maybe two days. Yeah, it is fabulous. That felt like maybe 200. So where you go, I will follow. Thank you, Nathan. It was my pleasure. <laughs> The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Audio mixing and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me 
and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Battle Rap Beirut, that's next week as we sit down with Chino, the Syrian-Filipino MC and godfather of the arena, the Middle East's only free-flow battle rap league. Chino and I are drinking Irish coffee, motherfuckers, with whipped cream. We will meet you there. <laughs>